Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Robotics Podcast. Hello, Steve. Thanks so much for joining that podcast. Such an honor to have you. Hey, well, thanks for having me. Good thank, to be here. Thank you. I would like firstly to ask you to introduce yourself and how you would like to define yourself. Well, uh, my name is Steve Patterson. I've got a website, steve-patterson.com for people who are interested. Yeah. Uh, about five years ago or so, I decided that I was going to start uh, doing some academic research on my own under the guise of philosophy, um, but I, I've researched many different areas of thought and uh, just because I'm interested in trying to figure things out for myself. And part of my own personal pursuit has been um, starting a podcast called Patterson in Pursuit, mm-hmm. where I have traveled around the world interviewing various um, intellectuals who yeah. are in the academy, people who are outside the academy, interviewed you know monks in Thailand to mm-hmm. like... Uh, talk to professors at Harvard and Oxford. So it's been a whole range of different people, um, yeah. kind of in my own personal pursuit of truth, written a couple of books. So I would say if I had to label myself, I'm something like an independent philosopher. It's probably the closest label. Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I'm, I'm a fan of your, your show. So I, I hope everyone also can listen to you because I, I really appreciate your thoughts and ideas. But well, I would like, I'd like to go first to your childhood. How was your childhood? And how it shaped you? <laughs> to be who you are today? Yeah, well, um, so I think the relevant part to my my own per- personal pursuit is I was homeschooled growing up. Mm-hmm. So I was homeschooled until the age of 16. Because I was homeschooled, I got to kind of research at my own pace. Um, yeah. I wasn't bogged down by the, my classmates. I was able to research and learn about things I was interested in. So that was kind of my background for, I don't know, my, my prepping my own personal pursuit. I got to start co- college early. Um, I started at 16, graduated at 20 because I was I just was able to accomplish stuff um, growing up a little bit faster than I don't know people normally my age. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another big piece of the puzzle for me was I was raised in a Christian evangelical household, mm-hmm. and that was very important to my parents. Yeah. But as I grew up, I started to become skeptical of some of those ideas and was not persuaded by some of the. Uh, apologetics that that uh, mm-hmm. that they had and so through some of those discussions it's sort of and in that I mean I wouldn't take away those experiences at all but it, it also taught me a lot of things about how kind of how deep you have to go in the pursuit of truth mm-hmm. in order to really feel like you are an independent mind and really trying to use reason to come to your conclusions mm-hmm. because there's all I think people are far 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 too um, ready to dismiss religious ideas as something sounds mystical yeah. or it sounds religious. A lot of times they say, oh, this is all nonsense. It's like, actually, there's a reason some of these beliefs have been held for thousands of years. It's because they actually have some real intellectual, metaphysical, moral depth to them. And so I feel like that kind of also set me up for, I don't know, the, the pursuit of truth via the philosophical method. That's very fascinating. You know, I, I really like what you're doing. And maybe it's rare to find this mentality. I mean, maybe society uh, tends to follow the stream and just take everything for granted. And I, I like what you say about orthodox opinions are almost 
always wrong. When you yeah. reflect that even to being a in religious family and you become skeptical, and let's be honest, when you're born and you have to follow certain dogma or beliefs, and then when you grow up, why I'm doing that? Is this true? I think not many people think about that. Why? How does that happen to you? Is it because you are homeschooled and give you a lot of time to think on your own and didn't follow the stream and what other kids are doing at this time? Oh, it's it's a wonderful question. I wish more people would would ask that. Um, yeah, that that's a really interesting um, subject. I've, I actually talked with some friends about this, and we're trying to kind of figure out what are the when people are very independent thinkers mm -hmm. and a little bit more skeptical of the orthodoxy. Why? Like, what what actually is the the background here? What's the psychology? Because it seems to be fairly unique. Um, and I have I have some suspicion of what was going on here because so. For me, actually, uh, there was a, a there was a particular moment I recall mm. where I started where that seed of skepticism became very firmly planted in my head, and that was actually when I uh, learned that Santa Claus wasn't real. Yeah. So, so it's a funny story, right? Yeah. So I was taught my whole life. Uh, this just happened a couple of weeks ago. No, I was taught uh, that's a joke. My whole life that. Uh, Santa Claus was this, you know, character that did all these fanciful things and he comes down the chimney. Yeah. And, and when I was young, all of my friends believed this. This was, this was commonly held truth. All the, the, the experts at that time, you know, parents, adults were saying yeah. the same thing. And so it just didn't even, I didn't even realize, it didn't cross my mind to think that this wasn't true as a kid. Yeah. And then at some point, you know, I, I, I actually remember I was playing, we were playing cards around the dinner table, my family. And one of my brothers said something like, uh, you know, oh, Santa Claus isn't real. And I was like, no, of course he is, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, mom, right, dad. And they kind of didn't answer. And they just kind of like let it slide. And the, the implication was, oh, by the way, child, Santa Claus is false. And I was devastated by this. I thought, hang on a second. You mean to tell me that you jerks were lying to me for years and years. All of my friends were wrong about this. All of their parents were wrong about this. And that was kind of actually, I think, the first seed where I realized, okay, even if the people around me are totally sure yeah. that something is true and all that they've heard is that it's true, they can actually be wrong. And then I saw the same pattern with, the, with regards to religion, yeah. where you know, I'm in these, this deeply religious community having conversations where people are referring to the authority of the pastor and the, and the clergy, and I think they're wrong. I've realized, actually, these arguments just don't stand up. And then that, so then I started getting more interested in academic ideas and I realized, oh my gosh, the same thing is going on with economics and the mm. same thing is going on with political theory. And then that sucked me into philosophy and I said, oh my gosh, the same thing is going on with various domains of philosophy. And then even to my shock and horror, even into the foundations of quantum mechanics, if you're interested in like uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, yeah. I think there's a bunch of, bunch of nonsense there as well. And even to my, uh, maybe the past five years has been the biggest shock, even the foundations of mathematics, the stories that were told yeah. about the foundations of math around the turn of the 20th century turn out to be uh, at best ill-formed. There are all kinds of ideas that our, our post-Cantorian uh, mathematical world believes to be true that really there aren't good arguments for and all kinds of mathematical structures built on top of assumptions that I think turned out to be wrong. So I, when I started my own personal pursuit of truth, I was not in any way expecting to come to that, to those conclusions. But again, to my shock, um, it seems to be permeated on all areas of thought. If you look deeply enough, actually the orthodoxy is not built on sound foundations. And that's not to say 
um, you know, you have to like discard the entire structure of quantum mechanics or, you know, yeah. work in mathematics that's been built. It's just, uh, you have to approach it from a different angle, maybe discard some things and try to refound other things. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm, I'm currently doing and interested in. You know, that's really brilliant point. You, see, you know, that's the basis of maybe, maybe the problems we have in our lives. But I think when people like uh, maybe go against what uh, they have been told, like the story you have told now, uh, you mentioned now, sorry. I think that's something um, maybe scary when you have a kid and you still kind of thoughts and believe as a kid. And, and when you grow up and you figure out everything around you, it's just you have to uh, maybe don't have to have different ideas or maybe questioning mm -hmm. their reality. Maybe mm -hmm. I ask you, why does this happen in the first class? Why do you think society, in, even in science or maybe religion, because I think in the end of the day, all, all that's uh, maybe go in one direction that how you um, ask deep question and don't take that uh, like for granted and you have to believe everything. Why is this happening, do you think? Man, these are such good questions. I, I don't know. So uh, that number one, I don't know. I have some suspicions. Mm. Um, I think there's a pretty good kind of practical evolutionary explanation here that it's simply, it simply works better that you should you could think society or group dynamics work better if not everybody is a a radical philosopher questioning the foundations of everything mm -hmm. like for somebody who has more of an intellectual disposition i love the idea of having a large group of people who are curious about learning at the deepest level but i also recognize that uh if everybody were were doing this society would completely collapse and fall apart yeah. <laughs> so there there seems to be there seems to be a role for Skeptical inquiry it seems to be very, very important, especially over long stretches of time, you know, thousands of years. But on the short term, on the group level, um, it's actually very disruptive. I mean, for example, like because I'm not part of the religious community I grew up around, you know, that is that's a big deal, especially, you know, if, if I weren't if we weren't in the modern world where we can be very mobile and we can, you know, move to a different city, have different friends relatively easily, different communities we're around. If you're, you know, if you're if you're in a more localistic context, you losing your group identity in that way is, is really a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and it's very difficult psychologically as well. I mean, yeah. if you know, you're not part of the, the religion and the community of your parents and your peers and all the authority figures around you. I mean, that is, you know, most people I don't think can even go through the psychological difficulty yeah. of accepting that and just sort of building their, their network elsewhere. Yeah. So I think that's part of the reason why is, is, uh, is blind belief, um, mm -hmm. though it may not be philosophically justified or wise, is something that sort of works in a group setting. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm curious to ask you, you mentioned something, I think uh, anyone who was trying to think differently or be skeptical, psychological pain. Have mm. you ever yeah. felt being a pariah in your community, a community oh, for example? Yes. My goodness. Uh, yeah. yeah, my whole life. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing thing. So I, I mm. definitely would consider myself a gadfly, somebody that, yeah. you know, I'm not, I, I would not say I have a group. Um, there's a, there's a handful of people in my life who, you know, I have deep connections with deep respect for, but um, I just have accepted that my, my social role, if I have one is not actually to conform to the ideas of the group or even to gain group acceptance. Um, it's just to try to have as, as rigorous and, and honest and clear and detached an analysis of some thing as I can. So like with religion, I mean, that was obviously difficult, you know, falling away from, from that psychologically, you got a lot of condemnation. And in, in, the, in the domain of religion, there's a lot of moral beliefs 
So the idea, not only are you, you know, not part of the community that you grew up around, but a lot of those people think that you're bad, like morally bad, and maybe going to be punished for your badness yeah. by falling away from those beliefs, because that, that's difficult. But also in the academy, I mean, you know, I, I only have my BA, but the, the short time was, I was in college, I was not well liked by anybody. Well, yeah. I shouldn't say that. I mean, you know, I met my wife in college, you know, they're individual students that, yeah. that I, I had good relationships with. But in terms of like, you know, the professors, you think the professors are going to like the guy that's skeptical of everything that they're saying, you know, the, the arrogant young kid that is like, no, nah, actually, I think the professor is wrong here. That was me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that definitely yeah. didn't make me the class darling. Um, and even uh, after I, I graduated, I was in um, the nonprofit world for a little bit. I was doing um, video production for some nonprofits. And even then, my, the, the, let's say the professional relationships I had with people that were supposed to be my superiors in terms of the organizational hierarchy, mm. didn't, I didn't necessarily get along with them because I'm not doing what I'm told, I mean, to be frank because I have this like, like deep skepticism um, of people, other people's judgments, just because I've seen failure at the highest level for you know, 20 years. Um, I'm, not the, I'm not the best employee unless you're a very unique employer that would know how to handle somebody with this type of psychological disposition. So yeah. the psychology is a huge part of it. And, and in fact, the, the, the more I research here, the more I think philosophical confusion is probably not the root mm-hmm. of a lot of, of confusion in the world. I think something like the psychological dimension is actually a bigger component. I think the reason that people might be confused about X Mm. is not because they've thought a lot about X and are just confused in some abstract point. It's because they're terrified to have independent thinking. They're terrified to have any social judgment uh, from other people that Mm. says you're a crackpot, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. And they just don't have that type of uh, psychological strength or independence or something to be able to put up with um, dissenting publicly. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think the psychology is a huge, huge component in terms of people tr- really trying to uh, become independent thinkers, try to get at the truth themselves versus sort of conforming more to what they were taught in the academy. And I know from my personal experience, like the people I went to school with who went on to grad school tended to be, uh, let's say, not the most independent thinkers, mm-hmm. right? The best students were the ones that sort of were submissive, that did what they were told, that wrote what the professor wanted them to write that didn't rock the boat, you know, that gets rewarded within the academy and uh, strong dissent generally doesn't. You know, that's very interesting. I, I can relate to you because I think when you mention uh, maybe an academy or corporate world or religion, when you're submissive to certain ideas or mm-hmm. you have to fake it, for example, but I can see you come across as someone who is um, candidate and frank and any strong belief in what you have uh, believed in or maybe what you mm. think is right. And, and that's make people maybe don't like you. Right. Do you, do you think yeah. that's make you tired in your life? Because it, to be honest, sometimes maybe you, you just simply can fake it, but you can do that. Yeah. Well, so I think, I think I got very lucky yeah. um, because I have a, I have a wife who is, who loves exactly all of those qualities yeah. about me that other people hate. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not too, I don't have to worry that much about social acceptance because like I have everything that I want in terms of my family life. Mm-hmm. Um, now before that, you know, before finding my wife, um, I still, I would say that, you know, there's some, there's some small percentage of the population that can just accept uh, social condemnation. Um, if you're familiar with Jordan Peterson's psychological, yeah. um, he's got like an online psychological test 
that I, that I took because I was interested. And I remember one of the results was that I was 100% disagreeable mm-hmm. and 100% open to experience. I forget what the other ones were, but it was like all 100%. Now, 100% disagreeable doesn't mean I'm necessarily rude all the time. It just means something like um, very much okay with confrontation and you know, frank discussion and you know, correction of errors and that type of thing being, being out in the open. Now, that, that can be a, a great benefit if you're doing independent philosophical work, like, wow, that's a great psychological trait to have. But if you're trying to have a normal life where you know, you're socially accepted and yeah. well-respected by your peers within, the same, you know, within an existing establishment, that is not the psychological trait uh, that, that will yeah. reward that at all. So, yeah. Maybe I would like to go for uh, the academy, and I think, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm still in academy, and but of course, you can find a lot of story that everything there's always a room for improvement. And I think even in corporate world, but maybe in academy because it's my thing. That's something uh, uh, the education is the most important thing we deliver to students. So, mm-hmm. what's your thought about academy? How if we look to the history? Because I I, I don't know how we see the evolution or be how it's evolved over the years. To become mm-hmm. in this way if you can tell us your thought about that simply what do you think how how would become now so because i get to be 100 percent disagreeable mm-hmm. i i don't have to try to sound respectable um so i'll just give you my honest thoughts here oh. i think that the contemporary academy has run its course i don't think that the future of high quality intellectual production is going to be from the academy there's going to be some exceptions here there are some domains in which the existing academy is doing things right um but i think i think the invention of the internet is the biggest technological invention for intellectuals in all of history bigger than the printing press or anything else because if you think about the historical role of the academy for nerds or for people who you know were really interested in ideas if you really wanted to, to um, deepen your knowledge, you would pretty much have to go to a university for the library mm-hmm. because you, there was no way to get access to high quality information. Um, so the idea of somebody being like a self-studied biologist in the 1600s that didn't have access to, well, of course it wasn't biology per se, but uh, a self-studied scientist and in, in advanced in some multiple disciplines just in their garage mm-hmm. is is not is going to be very very unlikely but the idea in the 21st century of there being self-studied intellectuals of all varieties is it is inevitable i mean it's already upon us now but it's uh, it's inevitable i just don't think i think with the internet the role of the academy is greatly diminished because i and anybody else has access to all books and practically all information that's been written in an academic context for all of history available to us for free at our fingertips. And I can, can I, I can communicate with anybody else on the planet. Any researcher that I like that's still alive could find their email, send them an email, collaborate, run ideas by them. And I've done that many times. There's a philosopher who I've uh, come across in my uh, investigations who is the highest quality philosopher I've ever met. And so I'm personally paying him a pretty significant amount of money to do one-on-one philosophical training totally outside of the academy. Mm-hmm. So like this, the, the level the level that you can get to on your own, I think is extremely high and you don't have to deal with bureaucracy. You don't have to deal with writing grants. You don't have to deal with, you know, researching whatever your advisor wants you to research. You know, you don't have to deal with, you know, playing by the rules until you get tenure and then maybe, then maybe you can research what you, what you want to research. 
Um, you don't have to do with any of that. It's just going to be totally free online. And uh, you can connect, like in my circumstance, for example, I have an audience that has paid me, that freely pays me when I release content, yeah. even if it's incredibly esoteric content. So like I, some of my audience is, well, most of my audience is people in the general public who are just interested in ideas. They like the research that I'm doing, but I'm putting stuff out there sometimes about like the philosophy of mathematics, mm-hmm. which seems like a very esoteric discipline that not too many people are interested in. And I don't even, I still don't know if my, a lot of my uh, uh, supporters are, are particularly interested in, but I'm interested in it. And they're interested in, in financing me for my independent research and they, and they pay for that. So it's like a, it's like a decentralized um, patronage method where I don't have to, I don't have to suck up to anybody. I'm just doing whatever I want to do and people will pay me to do that research because they, they enjoy it and they think it's valuable. So I just think that paradigm is so strong. It's going to be so appealing to so many people that I think the role of the Academy will be greatly diminished um, in the future. Now, there are some obvious exceptions here. Like I think you can get far in, in learning chemistry, for example, by having, you can buy a ton of lab equipment and put it in your garage. And there are independent, like you can check out people on YouTube that are just people who have followings. They make cool videos about chemistry and they make enough money to finance buying pretty fancy lab equipment to put in their garage and learn stuff and experiment. That's cool. But you're not going to be able to put, you know, the Large Hadron Collider in your in your garage. Like, there's still going to be some role going forward for massive infrastructure costs to do, you know, really high level research. So I don't think the academy is going away per se. Mm-hmm. I just think it's going to be greatly reduced in scope. That's very interesting. Uh, maybe I'm just asking this question because I think that's something I think uh, you mentioned the dilemma we have in academy, and you, you mm-hmm. think it will be diminished. And um, I agree with everything you said, but maybe the question here will be, with, including myself, I don't know anything else I can do, to be honest, uh, for the moment. So I'm, I'm questioning also mm. self, what, what else could be interesting I can do or more beyond academy. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think people are stuck in academy? Or maybe this system, is, we mm. know how this, like you speak about the public parish, and I would love also to know your thoughts about that. But mm. why people stuck in this system, including myself in this case? Why we stuck I, I in think, system? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons. Um, one is there is a great deal of prestige that mm-hmm. the academy enjoys that uh, is going to be slow to decay. Although recently, I think it's decaying pretty quickly. But um, I think the fact that for somebody who's an intellectual to have an existing establishment that's been around a long time that comes with social prestige. Yeah. And if you do what you're told and play the game, you'll probably get a reasonable enough paycheck. You know, you, maybe you're an adjunct somewhere. You're not going to live an amazing life, but you have a, you have a good enough already existing path that it's very attractive for people. And quite frankly, I think that our, our, uh, the educational system that's not, Uh, it's not yet college and university level. I think it trains people in all kinds of negative ways for only being able to succeed in the academy. Mm. Like I think there's a lot of there's a lot of skills that you learn in school if you're in high school or maybe an undergrad that are only applicable skills to playing the academic game. And if you were to get out in the real world, you would actually find they're not skills. They're actually hampering you. Bad ways of thinking, yeah. uh, being very very submissive. Um, I, I don't think. It trains people for life in the real world. So I think a lot of people are kind of stuck in the academy, to be frank, because they couldn't succeed outside of it. It sounds rude to say, but I, I really believe that's the case. And, and certainly over the course of my conversations with various intellectuals over the past several years, 
I, I, I have met many professional academics who are teaching who enjoy relative social prestige and I do not think could cut it in the real world. They would have to essentially start over and be like, okay, how do I create value from people as an employee outside yeah. of the academy? So so if you, so all the training is pushing you towards that one direction, then it's not, you know, it should be expected that there'd be a lot of people sort of stuck in the academy. Now also there are some people, I'm sure you're included in this, who are uh, maybe more ambitious, who have more talents, who, are, who see the academy sort of as a constraint, not as maybe an opportunity, but sort of as a constraint, but they don't know what to do. They're stuck in the academy in the sense that like, I don't have any other options that I'm aware of, though I could do other things. And this is, this is the group of people I wanna reach because I want to be able to say, look, you know, what is the research that you're interested in? If you're interested in something like robotics, you can go into the private sector, no doubt. You know, uh, if you're a robotics engineer, people will pay for that. But also, if you're interested in, let's say, theoretical robotics, uh, there is a market for that in purely in the intellectual domain. I, I can refer you to, there are some YouTubers, for example, mm -hmm. who have like millions of subscribers that just do recreational uh, robotics and they, yeah. they're sort of experimenting with robotics and they are absolutely geniuses. Like I, I don't throw that, I, I, I hate the term genius. I, I don't think it applies to almost anybody. And I think it's people are very confused about what that means. But for what people think they mean when they use the term genius, there are, there's a guy named James Bruton, B-R-U-T-O-N, mm -hmm. who is creating unbelievably complex robotics you know, out of his house, has a, you know, is making good money and is doing uh, uh, like nerdy stuff. He's, he's creating like, you know, uh, robotics costumes for X-Men and you know he's doing like a, a version of um, what's that uh, the the dog that the Boston Dynamics people yeah. did I forget what yeah he's, he's doing his own version of that but open sourcing it and people pay for it so I think I think if you're creative and entrepreneurial regardless of what your interests are even if they're really academic and esoteric I think you can you, it, there will be an audience for it especially if you can find a way to communicate it in, in a manner that people find engaging then, then they'll pay for it, which is it's just shocking to me. Like some of the stuff, like you know, when I started writing about the philosophy of math, I did not have any expectations whatsoever that people would go, yeah, great job. You know, I was like, I, is there a market for this of all content? Yeah, it turns mm -hmm. out there is. So if you're interested in robotics, I would say there's definitely a world out there outside of the academy that is looking for ambitious and competent people that it may be a more rewarding lifestyle than, than the academic life. You know, Steve, I think uh, the last part, especially for what you mentioned, I think is a game changer for the coming years. I think podcasting and your voice, for example, and YouTube's, I think that's a game changing. But maybe I would like to stop again in the, because you mentioned a really interesting point in the beginning about social prestige. And I think mm -hmm. that's something even not an academy in our life. And that's, I think, related to what you're doing also, being skeptical. Do you, how we can maybe collapse this, the hierarchy? that you have to be submissive. How we can do that? I don't know. And I don't think, so my, my disposition <laughs> is to say, blow it all up. Like I, 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 think the, 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 I think the contemporary academy is sort of an embarrassment in my opinion in, mm. in most domains. And I only say this because the last several years of research as I've gone into, you know, there, there's supposed to be a hierarchy of ideas. And uh, at the very peak of the hierarchy is math. And then one step below math is physics. Yeah. And, and if you talk to the physicists, they would say actually physics is at the top and math is subservient to it, yeah. but whatever, you have math and physics at the top. 
So I, I also incorporated, kind of imported this. That was just my default assumption. Um, you know, the smartest people are, of course, the mathematicians. And uh, I, I started researching uh, a, a bit about the philosophy of math and the history and the sociology of math because for kind of complex reasons, I was, I was making claims in philosophy about the nature of logic. Mm-hmm. And people would make very bad arguments saying that you could have logical contradictions in the world. And look, look at the circumstance in quantum mechanics. You can have a, an existent logical contradiction in the form of a superposition, a superposition of mutually exclusive states. And they thought that meant there's a logical contradiction in the world. Other people, I've had, I've had professors tell me this, that an example of, of a logical, existent logical contradiction can be seen in set theory and mathematics. The idea of an infinite set seems like a logical contradiction. And this person, yeah. this was a professor at Columbia, was saying that, uh, but that's okay because there are actually contradictions in the world. The other example he, he gave was of the Pope. And he said, the Pope is a kind of an existent logical contradiction because the question is, is the Pope married? And he said, well, the Pope is married to the church, but he's also unmarried. So, ah, oh, he is married and unmarried at the same time. We have discovered a logical contradiction, which is the most you know, abhorrent, ridiculous idea that somebody could ever um, uh, muster. But of course, it came from the academy. So anyway, I say that because I, I think... Um, I think it's really bad. I think the state of the contemporary academy is, is horrible. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, while I would like to explode the hierarchy, I'm not sure that is the best way of going about things because hierarchies do serve valuable functions. So would the domain of physics pr- um, progress as far as it had if every single physicist was trying to be a theoretical physicist and establish sound foundations for the discipline. Mm-hmm. It might actually be better that we have um, people who are not as interested in critically thinking about the foundations who are sort of taking the, they're working within a paradigm and extending knowledge within that paradigm. That can be very valuable. So, so in terms of going forward, like it could be the case that submit for those who have the psychological disposition that they want to be submissive and work within somebody else's paradigm and extend that knowledge. Okay. That can be very valuable. That's that's, it's sort of like the employer employee relationship. Employers uh, and entrepreneurs can be really valuable in the marketplace and they don't have any bosses, but in, in order for an employer and an entrepreneur to really succeed maximally in the world, he needs employees and the employees sort of by definition need to be at least a little bit deferent to their employer. So it's the same sort of relationship, I think, in the world of ideas. And, and, and my suspicion is that the, the paradigm um, uh, thinkers who are really trying to think at the highest level are not going to be in the academy. Um, I, think yeah. that, I think that we're going to see, because in order to create a, a, a new paradigm, you have, to, you have to see the big picture. You have to be able to step on toes. You have to be able to to think heretical thoughts. And I just don't think the contemporary academy hmm. is selecting for those people at all, though the people within the academy might be able to work, once they have the paradigm established, they might be able to successfully extend knowledge from there. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. That's a sad thing, and that's true. And it's still happening, yeah. And maybe I'm curious to ask you this question. Um, imagining that not everyone can really do like a YouTube channel or both, content, or maybe have the skill enough to do what you mentioned. Do you imagine something that, I think Eric wanted something that, can we have an institution or maybe something beyond the academy, a new structure, a new, um, I don't know, have you ever think that I, don't, I wanted to make something different beyond how the academy model is built? Yes, um, uh, I, I say this um, just because of personal experience. Mm-hmm. So 
my, be, the, the nature of philosophy lends itself to kind of being a lone wolf, doing everything yourself. However, in uh, over the past, this probably happened about maybe four years ago or so, um, there was somebody who reached out to me who liked my some of the work I was doing. Yeah. And they had a research institution in San Francisco Bay. And so I went out there and talked to them. And and this is actually what the, the philosopher I was talking about that I really respect was affiliated with these guys. And they had a private research organization mm-hmm. that was studying several different areas of thought, mainly psychology, but also sociology. And the one guy was doing philosophy. And I would say they they had a model where you have the one main researcher who is uh, who has a private sector funding, who then is employing other researchers. Um, and the other researchers can either, they can have some of them, I've just seen one guy, um, he does have a YouTube channel and some of his lower level researchers are also starting to do YouTube content. But that doesn't even need to be the case. You can have the one main researcher who is the face of the organization who's maybe communicating the ideas that they're researching. And under him, he has people who aren't aren't the communicators, but are still doing research. So that model is currently already in existence. I don't know how popular it is. Mm-hmm. That's the only one that I can think of is that is doing like softer social research that's private. Um, uh, but I'm sure that there are others out there. And I think that model will be growing as well because, um, well, the funding is an interesting circumstance here. Like, like who funds such a private research organization? Well, there are wealthy entrepreneurs who are very aware that the academy is sort of rotten from the inside and are actively looking for replacements. Um, so I think, I think in the future, with these people, of course, as I'm saying, we're sort of affiliated with them. Mm-hmm. I think in the, going forward in the future, there's going to be more and more um, uh, successful entrepreneurs who are also intellectuals that see the, the value in high quality research that are going to start funding private sector alternatives that are structured completely differently. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Yeah. And maybe maybe there's argument here because maybe someone is listening also you have audience also from the academy so how we would see that industry because sometimes they have a requirement and you don't believe in i think in degrees because i, I for myself even i think it's not about titles i think mentality is different so but sometimes it's like industry sector uh, require a certain degree like phd or and you know, on beach, you have to spend like how many years and stuck in the lab. And sometimes you have developmental health issue and low payment. So how do you see all this problem? If someone, okay, want to go to foreign district sector, but look, they, they, they need a degree, like each degree. So how do you see this? Is this a problem, do you think, also? Yeah. I, I don't, I think that there are very few jobs that actually require the degree. Mm-hmm. The, they might even say they require a degree, but they actually don't. So mm-hmm. I say this because one of my buds is um, an entrepreneur who is also incredibly disenchanted with the academy. And he has made an organization, it's called Praxis, or he founded an organization, I think he sold it, but um, for a while he was the CEO and the, and the, mm-hmm. the founder, where they would take young people, it was like a college um, alternative, and they would sort of put them straight into the private sector and uh, um, they could skip college altogether and they would get paid and they would sort of start their career without going to college at all. And for some percentage of those jobs, they, the companies that were employing these young people would, could list uh, a four-year degree required. But it turns out that's just, that's like the HR listing. That's not, mm-hmm. that's not actually the requirements. Like if you talk to the, the CEOs of these companies and you say, hey, look, as he did, um, I've got these talented young people. I've got this curriculum um, for 
uh, training them how to be a productive employee. They don't have any degrees, but look at the track record, you know, whatever, would you be interested? And, you know, a huge percentage of them say yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the the degree model, the idea that you need the the formal certification, that works if you're talking about a government position or all kinds of government jobs that do require the the formal label, and it works in the academy. You know, all kinds of positions in the academy that require a formal label. But I think there's a lot of um, even huge companies like Google, for example, has recently said they don't see any difference effectively between people that have degrees and don't have degrees. Um, and so that's not a requirement anymore for their application process. Mm-hmm. We've already seen there's all kinds of companies in the private sector that are doing this right now. And I'm only imagining that this is going to strengthen, especially like the crazier the academy gets, the more politicized the academy gets, the more that competent entrepreneurs and people in the private sector are going to say, look, the last thing we need, the last thing we require is certification that you went through this degree uh, process that only means, you know, you were sort of propagandized for some amount of years, yeah. you know, that, that maybe that, it, you know, what does the degree signal? I don't think it signals employability very much. And I think entrepreneurs realize that or employers are going to realize that if they aren't in the academy and they aren't in government. Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, I think that's a true happening. Yeah. But I would like to ask you again and touch again about, uh, the education. What you're talking mm-hmm. about education, because I think that's the root of everything. For you, when you, you were a child and you still figure out who you are and what, I, what I'm passionate about, what's my purpose in life. Sometimes you're passionate, for example, in mathematics, physics, but you still, at a certain time in your life, you have a, like a crisis. What I really want, I don't really enjoy. For example, I have with this senior professor leave the job because they don't seek for job security. They want career security. I know some mm. people say that's nuts. Maybe well crazy, but I can understand when you have this passion and the side and other side has security, like financial security, and it makes a lot of pattern in your life because it's my life. But how do you see education? Do you think education is not preparing us? How you figure what you want, who you are, and what you thought about the education in general? In yeah. So I think there's a difference between education and formal education. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's a difference between education and school. For me personally, I, I put an incredibly high value on education, like personal education and yeah. improving my understanding of the world, deepening my knowledge um, and learning. That's like almost number one in my life and has been for a long time. Um, but I don't think the I don't think school does a very good job of uh, improving people's knowledge. Yeah. I think it, I think. I mean, again, I, I say this as a, as a radical outside the profession. I think it harms people's minds. I think starting in, you know, the youngest, um, uh, well, at least in the United States, and maybe it's better elsewhere, but the, the, the U.S. I, I think everywhere uh, is the same issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah it might be. I, I don't have enough knowledge to say, but I, yeah. that sounds very plausible. Um, I think starting at the youngest age, as soon as you go to school, I think you pick up all kinds of terrible habits people make all kinds of very unhealthy and disempowering um, inferences. So like when you're, when you're young, you starting at, I don't know, you're, you're in school and you're six years old Yeah. from that age until you're 20, you know, you go, you go to college in your twenties. When you are in the schooling system, there is a, there is a, there is an implied framework of school. That's very damaging to your mind, which is that there are the authority figures out there that are, that are teaching you the information that you have to repeat to them in order to get the approval from them. And then if you follow the rules and do what you're told, then you will progress to the next grade. And it's year after year after year after year of this. And that you start to infer that, okay, the way the world is, 
is there, there's the great, powerful, wise people out there. And, it, you know, if I jump th through the hoops for them, then somehow I will be entitled to success. Like, that is not the way the world works at all. Like, that's a very damaging mentality. That is not, nobody is going to come out of school if they have internalized that framework and be an entrepreneur, none. Like, you don't, you're not, you're not going to have any entrepreneurial skills um, at all. You're going to be, you know, maybe you'll be an okay employee, but even plausibly then, probably not very good. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the educational system, I think the way formal education works is totally broken. I, uh, I think it harms people's minds. There can be some exceptions. I think college does the same. Um, and so, and I, I can also speak a little bit of personal experience. Yeah. Like I, I was a homeschooled guy and you know, that's very non-standard, especially when I was doing it, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, but uh, I can definitely say having the contrast of being homeschooled, uh, being kind of self-studied and self-motivated and deepening my research versus going to college for four years, uh, there's no comparison. Like what I was doing, the, the game I was playing in college was not the intellectual game at all. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was some weird social thing that was sort of like, that was sort of uh, mapped onto a pseudo intellectual game. I mean, I remember this too, when I was in college, like, I remember being a little bit disheartened because I started getting really good grades yeah. uh, as I sort of gave up um, trying to make good arguments because I didn't realize this going to college. My poor mother, she, she thought she still had respect for the academy. So she, we, I remember doing, um, learning as when I was being homeschooled and she was like, oh, you can't get away with this when you're in college and you can't get away with that when you're in college. And I thought, I just thought the standards were very high in college. And it was funny because after I made it to college, I was like, oh my gosh this is not the case at all. It took me probably a semester, maybe two semesters where I realized, oh, this is nonsense. This is absolute garbage. They aren't interested in ideas. It's just all, all in order to get the grade, you have to tell the professor what he wants to hear. That's and awesome. that can, yeah, and that, that can be, it can be if he's uh, very political, it can be because I have my degree in political science. So if, if, if you flatter their own philosophical biases, you can get a good grade. Or it can be, this actually blew my mind. I remember I, uh, very early on, I wrote a little paper that I got like an F on. Mm -hmm. And I went, this was, I was like, this was actually before I, I got to um, start going to college before I was full-time. So I was doing this part-time when I was like 16 or 17, I think at the time. And uh, I talked to the professor afterwards and I was like, why, why didn't this do well? And she said, I, after reading this, you didn't communicate at all that you did any of the reading that you understood, you know, what I taught you, because I, even at the age of 17, I was like, I was, I was trying to engage with the theory of politics. I was like, you know, giving, I was trying to talk about ideas. I didn't, re I literally didn't realize that the professor wasn't grading the quality of the ideas. The professor was grading whether or not she successfully taught me something. Or, 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 or was grading me based on my ability to regurgitate what she taught me. And yeah. so she had pity on me and I redid it and I got an A. But when that happened, I, I, a little bit of my heart died because I was like, okay, all of the stuff I was excited about, which is like engaging with the ideas of political theory, yeah. that was given an F. And the thing that I thought was completely boring and uninteresting, which is just repeat to me what I've told you, got an A. Wow. You know, so that, that, and that type of thing, and that just carried on throughout the college experience. And I saw that in all of my colleagues and fellow students, that's what they were doing. And it's like, guys, this is not thinking. You guys aren't even thinking. You haven't even reached the table of the most elementary independent thinking.
because you've been taught this is the way you're supposed to do it since I guess you were six years old. You know, Steve, you really nailed it. What you mentioned is really true and it's still happening. Uh, you know, that's still happening. And, and that's a crazy because I think maybe you have a strong mind and, and mentality, but I think what's happening now, it affects the mental health. I can't tell the story when you have this kind of maybe you're thinking uh, maybe in different way or maybe you're passionate, as I mentioned, in something intriguing for you. And that affects the mental health and destroy a lot of people because you can't, you can't feel the feel of belonging. And, and sometimes you feel that you are always dismissed. Maybe you're, you're lucky because you have the support and you strongly believe in what you have. But if someone listening to you and still afraid to do what they believe in, because sometimes it's stuck. How, how, what are maybe the coping mechanism to avoid mental health? Because we are a socialist species and we have to follow others sometimes. And if you do that, it will be, uh, as you mentioned, for you, I think it's not easy. It could affect yeah. and take a toll on your, on your mental health. So what could be the coping mechanism to keep your sanity uh, intact? Yeah, correct. Another great question. So I've I, I got many things to say on this. Um, this is an entirely... It's kind of separate area from the intellectual pursuits, but it's it's equally, if not more important. Um, I think that the real question is something like, how can people gain confidence in themselves? Mm -hmm. Because if you have uh, unflappable confidence in yourself, you're not going to be persuaded or 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 deeply disheartened when people attack you and make you an outsider. So for me, I can only speak to myself here, but I have a suspicion that lots of people this would work for. For me, I, I am sort of, I'm committed to learning. And, and if you're actually committed to learning and you know that you're actually committed to learning, meaning your goal is to learn, then that gives you sort of a superpower. Because if you're, in the, if you're actually trying to learn and you're wrong about something, it's not a big deal. In fact, it's something to be celebrated. If you can realize, oh, I thought X, but actually X is false. Now I know X is false and Y is true. You've learned. And so you sort of succeeded. And if you're already correct um, and people are saying, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're dumb, you're an outsider, you're not, you're not part of the group, but you're right in your beliefs, then it's like, look, you guys are doing, you guys are doing some other thing other than the intellectual pursuit. So if somebody wants to, wants to correct me, then great, they'll be my best bud forever. Like you've really helped me achieve my goal if you're criticizing me accurately. Mm -hmm. But if you're criticizing me on the social dimension, I just, it's not something that uh, I'm super focused on. Or I should say it's a lesser goal than the pursuit of truth. It's a lesser goal than learning. And I think, I, I think now, now this is going to sound more arrogant, but this is, there's a similar, this, this sort of leads to the following uh, state of mind. Yeah. If you are uh, talking about ideas with children, and the child says, that's a dumb idea. Uh, you know, you're silly, you're stupid. Most people, if they have some bits of self-confidence are not going to take that to heart. They're going to go, okay, well, this is an annoying kid and uh, doesn't really know what he's talking about. And that's that, you know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a mosquito bite. It's like, okay, that's annoying, yes, but it's not the biggest deal in the world. Well, I suggest that the same phenomena can be at play when you are uh, receiving lots of criticism. Because if the people that are attacking you don't actually know what they're talking about when they attack you, you sort of can say, well, it's annoying, it stings, I wish it weren't the case, but you don't really know what you're talking about. And I have experienced that 10,000 times. 
uh, over the many years, I get lots of heated criticism. It was all less in the, in the recent years than I used to when I just started out. But yeah. I got tons of criticism for people. And because I'm interested in learning, I'm going, okay, is what you're saying reasonable or unreasonable? Does it get me closer to truth? Or are you doing some weird social thing, some mm -hmm. social dance because you think I'm threatening or something? And 99% of the time, people were doing some weird social dance. So if that's truth, what I've said is true, and you're interested in learning, then suddenly the sting of that criticism isn't as important. And fortunately, with the internet, I've been able to find a group of people who... Uh, who are kind of, I don't know, I, I can get away with quite a lot, quite a lot of radical things, and they're, they understand where I'm coming from, and so I don't really get attacked by them. And I suppose that's, you know, th those are my people, that's my community, and I'm not too worried about aggressive criticism from the outside. Yeah, that's really, really good point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think that's uh, maybe the solution that, but sometimes it's tricky. It takes time for, for different from individuals to to believe in yourself. But the, the key is to believe in what you think about. Yeah. Well, so so the key the key is to believe yeah. that to know that you're actually trying to learn, because if you I mean almost everybody once you have stated a public position on anything they feel tied to that position because they don't want to be seen as being believing something and being wrong. They feel embarrassed. Yeah. So the goal, the goal is not actually to stick to your guns per se. The goal is to pursue truth. And if you believe that you have the truth, yes, stand up for that. But if there is, if you're, if you're encountering a superior argument and good criticism, you have to go, oh, okay. Yeah, I was definitely wrong. Now, that's easier said than done. Like just recently, <laughs> for yeah. example, for probably, oh, I don't know. I would say implicitly for about the last decade, mm -hmm. I have a, had a particular metaphysical perspective on universals. I, I would have been what's called a conceptualist and the details aren't important, but I wrote many uh, different articles uh, explaining conceptualism because I thought it was really, really good and it solves all kinds of problems. Well, just a few years ago, I decided I don't think that's true anymore. Mm -hmm. And all of these articles that I'm writing, uh, videos that I've produced, you know, they have thousands of views and commentary and mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, I think it was actually fundamentally wrong about an idea that is very central to sort of the philosophy I was building, at least in, with regards to metaphysics. Now that most people would go, oh my gosh, you know, how embarrassing. I can't believe I made such a big boo-boo. But if you believe that actually you're on the pursuit of truth and while this is exciting, you can help others see past the errors that you yourself made. Now it's an opportunity. It's like, hey guys, look, wow, I actually learned and I think I was wrong about all kinds of things that I thought I was right about before. And the only reason that that's not like, I don't know, that's, that's not incredibly difficult to do just because I really deeply believe to my core, I'm just trying to learn. And I know that part of the learning process is being wrong and then, you know, figuring out why you were wrong and improving your beliefs. So if you can, if you're actually on that pursuit, then man, I just feel like that's a superpower. Wow. That's very fascinating. You know, if, if everyone, including myself, the pursuit of truth in my life and what I think, I think that's a... I think that's fascinating if someone can reach this level. So that's really great, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I, I'd like to ask you, because it's end, and I, I'm curious to ask you, what really changed in you after exposing your idea to your podcast and YouTube channel? What really changed in you, or maybe skill you have gained? How does this experience affected you as, as a person in first class, yeah? Yeah, well, I, I think it's been, well, so it's funny. So. Uh, 
part of my motivation for doing the podcast, well, it was many motivations, but one of them was I had recognized already that prestige is what people are really obsessed with. So the idea that I had these unorthodox beliefs out there, but I'm just some dude on the internet, like the chances that people are going to take those ideas seriously is approximately zero. Cause, and I don't have any formal training in some of the domains in which I'm, you know, like philosophy, I don't have a degree in philosophy and yet that's the thing I'm, I think I've created more value in than any other domain. And it's, that's the most important thing to me. Um, so part of the motivation going into the podcast was to say, all right, <laughs> what I'm going to do is essentially now magically conjure for myself prestige. It's still the same old Steve Patterson that's as I was several years ago. Yeah. But now, oh, no, no. I'm, I, now it's as if I have some prestige. I'm the guy with the podcast. I'm the guy that went around, traveled the world, talking to these prestigious people. And though I'm not super impressed with that, mm-hmm. other people I recognize are very impressed by that. That The reason we're having this conversation is because you've come across some of this work online. You go, okay, this is somebody that's in. Clearly, there's some credibility there. He's had all these interviews. So part of the motivation for the podcast was that. And so that has been, you know, that has been very successful. It's actually exceeded my expectations in terms of the success of the podcast, where I literally have been able to talk to some of the most prestigious philosophers in the world, like John John Searle, Timothy Williamson, most philosophers in the world, just because I have a podcast, Um, which is, it's just delightful. Um, In terms of the ideas, I would say, I have definitely met a few people who have uh, changed my ideas with regards to philosophy. There's uh, there's one guy, Bernardo Kastrup, who's a philosopher in somewhere in Central Europe, and he's an idealist. And though I'm not a, a metaphysical idealist, mm-hmm. I think everything is everything is fundamentally mental. Um, I disagree with him, but I think the depth of his, the quality of his arguments are better than any other idealist I've ever read. And they have definitely helped me deepen my understanding of, uh, of idealism and of metaphysics without a doubt. Yeah. Um, but also I've learned some social things. So like, um, so before, here's an interesting example. Before doing the podcast, I had the assumption that as prestigious as an institution was, it would be inversely correlated with the quality of the ideas coming from the people at the institution. So uh, I had the suspicion that you know, my school was really, you know, I was not impressed by the professors at all. But if you were to go to a more prestigious school, the professors would be even worse. And oh my gosh, you go to Harvard and you would get, you know, yeah. absolute fools. Yeah. I had that suspicion. Mm-hmm. Now that turned out to be wrong. Uh, it turned out to be a correlation until I reached the top. This was totally surprising to me. I've never would have expected it because I sort of had the same, cor- like Columbia, for example, I had this mm-hmm. interview <laughs> with a a guy telling me that there were logical contradictions in the world because look at the Pope. Like, I just think so poorly of that idea. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and that's more, you know, Columbia is more prestigious than my school. Um, but then I did have a series of interviews at Harvard and Oxford mm-hmm. that I thought, okay, these are actually smart people. I had, I mean, it's not like I talked to every, you know, person on the faculty there. Um, but I did have some conversations and especially Oxford where I thought, all right, these, this actually seemed like pretty high quality uh, thinkers. I could probably learn by studying under these, these people at least a little bit. Um, and that was totally, I, I, that, that kind of blew my mind. And it, it sort of gives me a weird, I don't know, it, mm. it, uh, it, it, it makes more nuance in my, in my uh, ideas that I previously had with regards to the, the relationship between prestige and the quality of, quality of ideas. It could be something like, 
you know, at the very pinnacle, mm -hmm. you have actually good thinkers. And then immediately you have a bunch of people that are trying, that are, that are not thinking. And so therefore just repeat the ideas from the pinnacle. And so like you get this immediately, this immediate drop off from the, the highest level thinkers. And then, you know, the, the second level is just terrible because they're not doing any actual thinking because they're just repeating what the top people at the top say. So maybe, maybe something like that's going on. I don't know, but that definitely, uh, that's uh, something else that I learned from, uh, from having the podcast. That's very interesting. And what the thing that you aspire in your podcast or maybe in your life journey, what do you aspire to have the optimum goal for you? Well, for me, it's the truth. I mean, that's, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get at the truth. This is the podcast is a method for me to get closer to truth and, and allow me to like have the personal flexibility to be able to spend as much time thinking as I do. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a goal. If, if I have to settle for less than that, um, then for me, I mean, honestly, this is funny because I've had some conversations with people where they, they sort of assumed that what I'm trying to do is like be a public intellectual, you know, have a show or something and be the guy. That's actually not my goal. This is, this is a guise. This is a ruse for me to be able to make enough money to continue what I'm doing. But yeah. I don't even know if how much public work I'm going to be doing in the future. I'm not even sure that's a goal. At this point, I definitely think I have several books, several more books that I want to write yeah. just because I've learned a lot and I know other people would, would find what I have to say valuable. But uh, long term, I don't know. It's very plausible. I just sort of end up, I don't know, living on a farm with my wife or something, you know, content with, yeah. with what I've, what I've learned. I, there's other, I'm also interested in other creative disciplines. Like I really enjoy music. Mm. Um, it would be one of the martial arts. So uh, I'm not exactly sure, you know, 15 years from now, I don't know what things are going to look like yeah. though. I would say with a high degree of confidence, um, if somebody like myself uh, wanted to go this route and they wanted the public life and they wanted to be a public in, uh, uh, intellectual indefinitely, I have no doubt that you can do it as an independent intellectual. Like at this point, if I thought, okay, and this might happen, I'm not exactly sure, but if I thought, okay, I'm gonna be the, the public person, Steve Patterson, the whatever, the independent intellectual, as a career, I've, I don't have a doubt in my mind that that could be my career. I'm just not 100% you're sure yet that's what I wanna be doing. Yeah, that's interesting also, yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll ask you, do you think ego is important while you have this wallet of ideas and pursuit of truth? So you think ego sometimes is important? Uh, it depends on what you mean by ego. So if you mean, uh, yeah. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's interesting because I think there's many different definition for ego, but you are just in philosophy. So you are the right one to ask this question. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So I'll, I'll try to, I'll, uh, I'll answer your question as I interpret what you mean by ego. Okay. So, um, if what you mean by ego is something like pride, something you want your legacy to last, you know, you're very, um, uh, you, you like the idea of being seen as publicly successful, mm -hmm. um, that type of thing. Um, I, it's closely correlated to prestige, I think, that gets, gets a thrill at prestige. Then I, I'm actually not sure how important that is. So I, I had an interesting discussion a few years ago. Uh, I was complaining about people's egos mm -hmm. and, and their arrogance. And because methodologically speaking, you're trying to get at the truth. Ego and arrogance is not your friend. Um, uh, but he was saying, look, the fact is that humans are very egotistical. They are trying to glorify themselves just for the sake of doing, glorifying themselves, feeling good about themselves. And he said that motivation actually drives people to do great works. So like the hyper, hyper ambitious people that maybe have ego problems, they can end up creating a lot of value for the world mm -hmm. or in the context of, you know, uh, intellectual pursuits. If you, uh, if you have 
uh, lower level researchers under you that are kind of egotistical, but they're doing high quality work because they're egotistical, that can be a, a benefit and not a con. Uh, I thought that was a good argument. So um, in general, I would say like on a personal level, I think ego is a huge obstacle um, that has to be, I, I would say the way to defeat, to try to defeat your ego as much as you can is to learn as much as you can. Because at some point you will learn a sufficient amount such that you realize all the beliefs that you held were wrong. Uh, are, they're wrong and they're held for bad reasons and you're not that smart. Uh, and nobody has ever been that smart because the world is unbelievably complex and really difficult to get access to truth. So, so I think that helps calm the ego down. But on like a more practical level, there's probably some, there's probably some good that can come from, uh, mm -hmm. from utilizing ego in your professional pursuits. Interesting perspective, yeah. And what could be the most important quality you have to maybe, you gained while being seeking the truth? You think you have to maintain? What is quality you think? Well, I, maybe something like sincerity or, mm. or seriousness in the pursuit of truth, because I think that that's sort of the highest good. And it, it sort of makes, it puts everything else in lines. For example, if, if you're struggling with ego as every human does, then, but you're actually sincerely on the pursuit of truth, then as I said, you know, if you learn enough, your ego will be deflated. Um, you know, if you're, if you're not an honest person, mm. uh, you know, per, you know, uh, in your public life, but in your private life, you're an honest person and you learn enough and you're really on the pursuit of truth. You're probably going to learn that it starts benefiting you to speak the truth publicly. You know, if yeah. you're not a motivated person, but you're sincere in the pursuit of truth, well, you're going to find that actually it helps you get closer to the truth. If, uh, you maintain motivation or you find a way to maintain your own motivation or do things that actually interest you and don't waste your time with things that don't interest you. So I feel like if you get that, if you're, if you really are sincerely trying to figure things out, that just solves all kinds of other problems, but yeah. both, both in the, in the pure intellectual pursuit and in, in personal stuff as well. I think the life lived, the practical day-to-day -day life lived where you're more honest and you're sincerely honest is just way better than mm -hmm. one in which you're a liar. Like when I was young, I used to be a big time liar. I was a, an, an excellent liar. Um, yeah. and it worked in that context, but as I, I sort of lost that, I, I tend to tell the truth a lot more It's so much better. It's so much easier. You can devote a huge, a much larger percentage of your brain power to things that are interesting rather than maintaining your lies. So that's, I guess that's what I would say. If you really try to pursue the truth, it just solves a whole range of problems. That's wonderful. Yeah. And maybe the, here's the last question is. What is maybe the best advice was given to you and with a life is changing? Was it personally in your profession and was a life is changing? Well, there's a couple of points that stand out. One is, uh, well, well, so, so one, this was a uh, temporarily life changing is actually when I was, uh, when I was working at this nonprofit organization yeah. and, uh, I was, I was getting in trouble with my boss. Uh, we were, we were butting heads and, uh, the guy who was the kind of the HR person, he said, Steve, you know, you should probably work for yourself mm. because I think, you know, if, if essentially like you're the way that the, the, the way that you are psychologically disposed makes it that you should employ yourself. And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. And that was before I started doing my own thing. So that was good advice. Although now I feel like finally I've gotten a lot of that I feel like I could be a better employee now than I, than I was back, I don't know, six years ago or something. Um, but that doesn't take the cake. I would say the best advice I ever got or the best wisdom I ever got was when I was arguing with my mother hmm. and we were talking about, you know, philosophical things. And I was saying, I, I was saying something like, look, 
you know, you, you have your religion, but I don't believe that I, you have to give me reasons for your belief. And she was just absolutely sure that she was right in some areas. And I was like, I can't, yeah, I can't accept that. And she said, Steve, not everybody needs what you need. And in the sense, and, and, and there's some, a lot of weight to this because I, I have religious beliefs now, you know, I've had this experience of love that I had with a woman who's my wife. I was like, okay, there is some part, there's some dimension of truth in religion that I was totally oblivious to before. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, but that was very wise advice, which she was saying, essentially, look, it may be the case that there are many methods to the truth. And that was really hard for me to accept. I was like, no, no, there is one method. It's the method I'm working on. It's the rational method. Um, and so it's, it was, it's, it's still difficult for me to admit that I think there are multiple methods to truth. Um, I just, I can't do the other ones very well, but I do have to acknowledge there are. And uh, I think that's pretty dang good advice. Wow. I think that's like a cycle from skepticism, truth, and seeking truth, and then being believer and strong believer. That's, yeah, yeah. That's that's really wonderful. I, I would like to thank you a lot. That was really fantastic. I, I would I would encourage everyone to listen to you and support you. And yeah, we need more people like you and in our society. So I appreciate it a lot. Thanks a lot for your time, Steve. Well, fun. thank you for for the great questions. I, I I appreciate that very much. I've enjoyed this conversation as well. Thank you.